NK News has launched a new app that makes staying updated on all things North Korea easier than ever. The app gives access to the latest articles so you'll never miss a breaking story. It's fast, convenient and designed with readers in mind. Our team is dedicated to bringing you the most accurate and insightful information about North Korea with content and analysis unavailable elsewhere. Don't delay, download the NK News app from Apple's App Store or Google Play and stay connected with the latest North Korean news and analysis. The app also works with NK Pro subscriptions, offering full access to NK Pro content. Listeners, welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and joining me today in the studio for a short chat is Anton Sokolen, my great colleague from NK News. Welcome and happy birthday, Anton. Thank you very much, Jacko. Glad to be here. It's great. It, I think it's, it's been at least a month since I've had you on the show, so it's good to have you back. It's been a busy time in North Korea-related news. What would you like to talk about first? Likewise, I'm also g- glad to be here. Thank you for inviting. Uh, yeah, it's been over a month, and we have plenty of events happening on the Korean Peninsula. And, well, probably the most discussed topic would be the satellite launch, right, that we had last week. Mm -hmm. You already covered it uh, with my colleagues, but still we have uh, quite um, several developments around this issue. Right. We could talk about that, for example. Yeah, Kim Jong-un says he's seen some photos. Exactly, yeah, that's that's an interesting development, isn't it? Mm. For example, he said that he saw Rome, he saw the White House, and he also saw several, I, I think, air bases. I think one in Guam. Okay, so basically, he's like somebody who has just discovered Google Earth for the first time and is virtually flying around the world. Oh, look, there's Rome, there's the Vatican, there's the White House, there's an air base. What extra value could he have from the photos that he's got? It's actually good that you mentioned it because indeed it reminds me using uh, Google Earth. Yeah, for the first time, For right? the first time, right? Yeah. Pl- toying with it. At the same time, you know, they, uh, in terms of efficacy, I am not so sure if... Well, they haven't released any photos right, yet, Right, so we right? haven't seen what the resolution right. is, so right? So they just claim that yeah. they saw those objects, right, or cities, whatever, but we haven't seen any photos, n- n- no proof, and at the same time, time we are seeing South Koreans of course saying that Mm. well casting doubt on the efficacy of this uh, satellite and um, the quality of those pictures so we are not actually even sure how good they are or whether they do provide this um, you know high quality resolution to look into this object right right now South Korea is going to is planning to launch its own satellite is it tomorrow think yes by by the end of the month they said well that is today's the 29th so that's tomorrow Right. And we are seeing, right, so that basically SpaceX is going to take their satellite. Mm, the uh, Elon Musk's uh, company. Right. Into orbit. And there were talks about this race going on between North Korea and South Korea, who's going to do it fast. And of course, yeah, we can say that North Korea kind of beat them to the gut. But at the same time, in terms of, again, efficacy yeah. and in terms of use, right. I think uh, we uh, South Korea has slightly better chances of getting a slightly better picture. Yeah. maybe, and uh, actually get some use out of that satellite right. in orbit, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the best way for North Korea, I guess, to uh, sort of prove its metal without releasing an actual photograph would be if they said, this is the license plate number of the car that was parked across the road from the White House yesterday, something like that, like some 
image that you could only detect with very, very high quality cameras, that would be good. Actually, good that you mentioned that because I think they hinted at something mm. like this. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I can't really, don't, don't quote me on, on that one, but I think they mentioned that they saw certain warships marooned at ah. certain bases the U U.S. actually worships. And that could be interesting because it could be quite an indicator. Well, we still need to see whether th those are the ones that are actually marooned in those bases. But now, marooned is, is... Are you sure marooned is the word here? Because marooned... I birthed. Think mean, yeah, birthed. Yeah, because marooned is uh, abandoned or... or All right, my, my apologies. Birthed. Mm, birthed. Okay. Yes, yeah, probably that would be the correct yeah, birth, term. Okay. Yes, birthed at, at those ports ah. and so on. So if, if that matches, that, that yep. could be a yep. good verification thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you know, the next step would be uh, you know to read somebody's text from a, a from satellite. You know, this is your the SMS you got from your wife or something. Well, if they directly quote Biden's speech uh, from the White House, that would be uh, that would be something, right? Well, no, because we all get that. That's all, you know released on the website. All right, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> Just get that off the internet. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, anything more on the satellite story? I think you covered it all. But at the same, we've seen also this. Um, speech by uh, the North Korean representative to the United mm. Nations, right? And basically he refuted all the accusations because there were, there were certain accusations in the first place, right? Condemnation that, well, the satellite launch um, was in breach of international sanctions. Right. Uh, but again, when we are talking about this uh, sp space exploration, that's not the issue here. That uh, Because a every nation has a right to e explore space. Mm -hmm. But the issue is whether you're doing it using ballistic right. missile technology. Yep. And that is the main issue here. And at the same time, there is another issue is that whenever you are planning this satellite launch, you have to notify um, the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, right. and aviation authorities as well. Ah. But in our case, in the case of North Korea, uh, last time the DPRK did not notify these authorities, but did pass on a warning message to the Japanese Coast Guard. Right. And that is not really sufficient enough. Not sufficient. And they uh, uh, launched the rocket a day earlier than their period that they announced. Exactly, and which... failed. <laughs> so, okay. Um, yes, so, and of course, yeah, the uh, North Korean representative refuted all the uh, condemnations, said it's uh, North Korea's sovereign right to explore space, saying that 5,000 satellites are spinning around the Earth, and why can't we have one? Why can't we have one? Right, yeah. Uh, now, also uh, new developments this week. Things are happening on the demilitarized zone between the two Koreas as a result of North Korea deciding after uh, South Korea has been talking about it for a long time. But in the end, uh, and South Korea did suspend some parts of the comprehensive military agreement in reaction to the launch of the satellite. But North Korea said, you know what, the whole thing, forget about it. It's all off, right? Right. Good that you mentioned it. Shout out to my brilliant colleague, uh, Ivan Bremer, who covered this. He actually discovered the guard post being reinstalled, but North Korean guard post reinstalled al alongside the DMZ. Um, right. He went up to the border and, and, and saw it. Uh, well, <laughs> we can't really disclose our sources. <laughs> he yes. has his own satellite and somehow he saw he it. He has his own ways. <laughs> yes. Ways and means. Okay. Right. So, yeah, we, we are seeing that North Korea is installing, uh, reinstalling those. Right. Guard posts. Which they took down, what, 2018, 2019? 20, 
2018. As a result as of the CMA. As soon as, yeah, they, they signed this comprehensive military agreement, right. which is called military agreement, but the, the actual aim of the agreement was to reduce military tensions, right, right? by actually withdrawing troops from the militarized, yeah. zone, demil demilitarized zone. Making it more demilitarized. Exactly, yeah, making it more demilitarized, that makes sense. And reducing the number of outposts, guard yeah. posts. But now we are seeing that actually the guard posts are reinstalled and they are manned with with actually soldiers carrying mm -hmm. guns and it is a sign obviously of an, I, I think I read it into this as a sign of a new escalation going mm. on and as you mentioned it's hap it happened soon shortly after the, the bo both countries decided to scrap the deal the military agreement as you mentioned South Korea started slowly by like partially actually uh, scrapping certain parts of the deal, but then North Korea got extremely pissed off and just right. uh, let's take the whole deal out of the uh, table. Yeah, yeah, wow. And and uh, and as you say, this is a potentially new escalation, and it leads to the possibility of things like cross-border shootings, even if by accident. Right? Sometimes it happens. You're standing there, looking through a window with your finger on a trigger. You might get a bit sleepy. Your finger might pull a trigger. These things have happened across the demilitarized zone over the years, and uh, and suddenly you have a breach of the armistice. Truly so, right? It's a very dangerous place. It's military people. Right. Of course, anything can happen. Of course, it, it it could lead potentially to new tensions, and we're going to see more because, especially, I think, what's interesting is that we need to remember how Kim Jong Un was actually pointing at South Korean military facilities mm. on the map, right? So quite recently, a few months yeah. back, during his military meeting with top military brass, and you know, it's kind of troubling a bit uh, with these developments when. These tensions rise again when South Korea, South Korea also is about to reinstall those guard posts on, on the southern ah, side. So we're we already hearing this yeah. uh, sort of news. It's not confirmed yet, but mm -hmm. I'm sure it is going to be confirmed soon. Hmm. And, uh, well, it can't really lead to anything good, uh, in my opinion. And if we're seeing Kim Jong-un uh, taking a very hard stance on uh, towards the south, yeah. well, it's, it's very troubling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it, this is, is not what we wanted to see. Hmm. All right. Anything else you got for me today? You know, we also had elections going on in North Korea. We could talk about that. Mm. It was pretty interesting. I think it was a little bit overlooked because we had like we had a missile launch, we had a satellite launch, we we had this military agreement deal yeah. being scrapped. So many things going on, and obviously, whenever we hear elections in in the context of North Korea, yeah. what comes up to mind is like what sham elections, mm. um, not really properly conducted elections, and yeah. of course, what kind of election was this? Was it a nationwide election for? The, uh, what do you call it, people, the People's Assembly? Or? I think it was a lower level uh, elections, county levels, mm. uh, townships, and so on. So people were selecting, electing their representatives. Right. And usually, you know, f for many years, uh, North Korea was known to conduct w one candidate elections. Uh, yep. But this time they slightly changed it. They tweaked the hmm. uh, election process and allowed two candidates now. Ah. Uh, so at certain townships and yep. certain municipalities, let's call it like that. Right. So people actually could choose one candidate or another. Yes. And uh, the turnout was pretty good. I mean, of course, in North Korea, the turnout is great Always all good. the time, yeah, yeah. like over 96%. Yeah. So th that is great. Hang on. In, in cases where there were two candidates, were they both from the Korean Workers' Party? Well, that actually, that's a very specialized question. I'm not sure I can answer that, but I do think that it would be the 
the case. And, but we know, that, right, that there is like several parties in right. North Korea. There's it's not only Chondoist party, Chondokyo, right? right? And uh, there is also uh, kind of like quasi democratic party, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they are still. It's known for a fact that they are closely affiliated with the ruling party. Right. So talking about a real power dynamics there, it would be, uh, I think, premature or mm-hmm. a little bit naive. So right, because both of the candidates, if if there are two uh, in any township, would have been through some kind of approval process. It feels like that. Right. It feels like that because before it used to be just one candidate, pre-approved candidate, yep. and now it seems like it would be just two. It, it doesn't. Re- I don't think that it really leads to this liberalization of the process, or that uh, Koreans get North Koreans get more chance of electing their own like beloved representative. But at the same time, my colleague Martin Weiser mm. po- pointed out that there is a quite high percentage of abst- abstentions. And oh. yeah, and also so people going into a voting booth, but not necessarily writing a name or, right. or ticking a box, just right. turning it in empty. Right. Oh, that or uh, actually voting against, right? So uh, voting against certain candidates, like so preferring not the mainstream candidate, and right. that's that's interesting because it shows that there is a. At least some, uh, on a very low level, there is a certain election process and a certain engagement of people. So, yeah. And people try to find their representatives. So maybe there is even some trust in those representatives that they're mm. electing. Maybe some certain hopes are associated. But again, speaking about a mass phenomenon, well, I would say it's very naive. It would be quite premature. So has Martin written a story about that for us? I think... He is going to cover it, ah. but uh, but please check his articles on this uh, election reform, on the elections, this primaries, uh, primaries-like process. Right. And uh, yeah. Yeah, great. Uh, listeners, you'll find those stories, of course, at NK News. Uh, this is very interesting that uh, North Korea is having an election at this time. We in South Korea will be watching our own, well, we'll be watching South Korea's own National Assembly elections just, what, five months from now coming up in April. Uh, that's always an exciting time. It is an exciting time. It's going to be a pretty interesting race. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no indication of where that'll go yet. Uh, well, thank you very much, Anton, for coming and filling, filling us in on these three uh, big stories this week. Thank you for inviting. Always a pleasure to be here. And listeners, stay tuned because after this break, I have an interview with Lieutenant General Andrew Harrison, who is the Deputy Commander of the United Nations Command. Wow, that's fantastic. Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea. Okay, this interview was recorded on Friday, November 17th, 2023. Joining me here in the studio today is Lieutenant General Andrew Harrison, who is Deputy Commander, United Nations Command in Korea. 
He has had a distinguished military career with tours in, amongst others, Northern Ireland, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Thank you for joining me today, Lieutenant General Harrison. I understand you've held positions. Also, as well as your field career, you've held positions at the Ministry of Defense and at NATO, and then you became the Deputy Commander here almost two years ago in December 2021, and that stint is due to end soon. Have I got all that right so far? That's absolutely right. And and can I say, after following your work over the last couple of years, it's a pleasure to be here at last and be able to speak to you. So thanks thanks for having me. Uh, the, the pursuit has been uh, long and, and graceful, <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad to have you here in the studio. You're not the first non-American to hold uh, the position of Deputy Commander at the UN Command, are you? No. About six years ago now, mm-hmm. General Wayne Eyre, the Canadian, who's now their Chief of Defence Force, he was the first non-American deputy commander. Ah. And then Admiral Stuart Mayer, and the Australian, followed Wayne, and, uh, and I'm lucky enough to be the third. So th- this is sort of an ongoing tradition now, I suppose, a, a new tradition, as you said, six years ago? Yeah, it's the, the, the post is uh, formally tied between uh, Australia and Canada, ah. but for complex reasons, General Milley, uh, then as chairman in Washington, asked, asked the UK if we could fill for one turn of the handle. And again, I was lucky enough to be the right person in, at the right place. And these are always at two-year stints. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So could you describe the, the role and duties of the deputy commander of the UNC? What actually do you have to do? Well, I, I mean, in, in the most simple terms, I deputize for the commander on all issues relating to the United Nations command. Mm-hmm. The boss, General Paul Camera, he has responsibilities across three commands, the United Nations command, the Combined Forces Command, which is the ROC-US warfighting alliance, and the singular American uh, United States Forces Career USFK Command. So he wears three hats. Not simultaneously. Yes, simultaneously. And he will change, literally change the badge on his arm huh. as he moves between meetings wow. of those three commands because they have different authorities, mm. different responsibilities. And so it's a complex business. Fortunately for me, it's slightly simpler for me. I only have responsibility in terms of the United Nations Command. Right. And the duties of the United Nations Command, as I understand it, is to make sure the war doesn't restart, right? It's well, to, in, to, to keep the armistice. In the simplest of terms, yeah. It, the mission is about the maintenance of the armistice. You know, the, the end state we, of course, all seek is peace and security on the peninsula. Yeah. But that is in action to our mission which is about the the maintenance of the armistice, obviously signed in 1953, and then tasks and missions as given by the U.S. command of the United Nations command. So it is could expand into other areas, reinforcement into the peninsula from member states if needed. There are many aspects it could do in the future, but of course that depends on the authorities and the orders given by the commander. Now, North Korea recently repeated its demand that the United Nations Command be dissolved. They call it a U.S.-led multinational war tool. And that raises the question of just how much the United Nations Command is a United Nations organ. Now, I spoke recently with someone who works for a U.N. agency, and that person said it's a real open wound within the U.N. itself that the U.N.C. is called the U.N.C. while it is, in fact, under U.S. leadership and doesn't have any reporting lines or budget or oversight to or from the United Nations. What do you say to that? Well, the United Nations Command was mandated under the UNSCARS in 1950. Hang on, for the listeners at home. Yeah, the United Nations um, Security Council resolutions. 
So the United Nations voted for the formation of the United Nations Command. So it is by the very fact of its existence, it would only be in existence in its current form if the United Nations Security Council had asked for it to be formed under American command. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, it's, it's very clear that this was an incredible act of collective security that was put in place in 1953. And I think, I think the context is really important here. This was only five years after the Second World War. The world was trying to develop a system that would prevent us mm. going back into a horrific um, you know, global conflagration like we'd had between 39 and 45. And so this was the first big test for that new system of the United Nations. And it succeeded. Mm. It, it got the vote through. And we know nowadays the challenge of, of getting a vote through the, the, the Permanent Five and the Security Council. Uh, it got the resolutions signed, the Security Council resolutions 82 to 85. It got those signed. And that led to the birth of this organization, which, to be honest, then represented a perspective that allowed the aggression of the North to be challenged in the war, in, in the 50 to 53 war. And because those resolutions had no sunset clause, there was no, you know, like this will only exist for five years and then be dissolved. It, it, it's still existing under those original Security Council resolutions. Well, that's absolutely true. And of course, it can be argued that the war isn't over because we are only in armistice. Right. There is no permanent solution yet. Everyone wants a permanent solution. But at the moment, a bit like when the First World War ended, there was the armistice, and then that led to the treaty that solved the problem in perpetuity or until the next problem arose. But that's the position we find ourselves in now, where as the armistice expands through time, there is still a very strong role and a very strong function for the United Nations Command in order to enforce the armistice that was set up in 1953, and we've just commemorated the 70th anniversary of. How's the relationship with the UN these days? I think the relationship is fine as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there is constant communication between New York. There is the option for the commander to, at any time, pick up the phone and, t and talk into UN per se. But I think there's a, there's a misconception that the United Nations Command is a sort of light blue beret-wearing organization that's set up under the United Nations Peacekeeping Operations mm. Department, or now the Peace Operations Department, you know, that PKO organization came afterwards. Right. And so w we are unique. And in fact, I was reading the other day that there was an aspiration in those very early days mm -hmm. that there would be a number of UNCs around the world in different theaters. Ah. But actually, the, the way the UN worked journeys change and it, it moved direction and the peacekeeping operations cell was set up. Now, can the United Nations Command be both consistent with its original mission while at the same time adapting to modern times and, and modern circumstances? Well, it has to be. I mean, I think nowhere is the mantra true that if you don't change, you become irrelevant or more true that you know, if you don't change, you become irrelevant. And the nature of warfare may may rhyme, but actually the methodology and, and the way one operates changes on a, on a weekly, if not daily basis. And of course, with 
technology and different um, doctrine and adjustments in threats, you have to be agile all the time in order to meet the, the challenges as they arrive. Otherwise, otherwise you're, you're on the back foot and no one wants to be in that position in the military, that's for sure. Because the armistice, as we, uh, you've already mentioned, it's a 70-year-old agreement. This year we commemorated the 70th anniversary of the signing of that armistice. And that has some very you know, specific clauses and things in it. But as you point out, I mean, many things of there were no drones back then. Uh, North Korea didn't have a navy or an air force back then. So some things were just not taken into account, I suppose, when that uh, document was written. Yeah, and, and that goes back to the point that some of the challenges of the organization and the security it affords. You know, cyber wasn't really considered. Mm. Space was, you know, right on the cusp of being developed, but hadn't, right. hadn't really been effectively developed at that stage. I think the speed and scale of the information challenges was very different in those days. I suppose one could say that things have become more complex since mm. then. And, you know, we operate across many domains that aren't simply land, air, and sea. So, yeah, it just means we've got to deal with that complexity and be more agile as we face threats across those areas. Now, I'm glad I have you on the show this week because if I'd had you on last week or two weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to talk about this. This week, the Republic of Korea and 17 United Nations Command member states had their first ever meeting of defense chiefs. I'd never seen anything like it before. I think it's unprecedented. What brought this, this meeting about? I mean, I think it's absolutely timely. It was initiated by the president, and it was uh, an invitation. Pre- president Yoon of Korea. President Yoon through through the Ministry of, of Defence, mm-hmm. and so it's uh, or National Defence, and all seventeen member states were invited to attend, and it, it was just a a fantastic show of unity mm. and an incredible event. What can you tell us about it? What, why was it significant, and what did it achieve? Well, I think it demonstrated a unified position on on many of the issues that that countries were willing to put their representatives in the room to discuss their continued support to the United Nations command. And we had, like I say, a joint statement, a joint statement that was produced, which clearly espoused the way the United Nations command wants to move forward and demonstrated the unity that exists within those 17 member states. And those 17 member states come from all over the world. Mm. You know, I think aside from Antarctic and the Arctic, there are member states from all continents across the world. They come from, you know, Southeast Asia, Colombia over in South America, Europe, this region. It's a diverse group of nations with a common aspiration that peace and security on the peninsula who are working hard together and putting their troops in harm's way in order to maintain the security that they fought so hard for in 1950-53. Are there still troops from other, other countries here, not just the US? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think about 11 countries still have troops directly supporting the United Nations command. I might be slightly Mm-hmm. inaccurate changes by the month but right. but it's it's about that sort of number as examples we have uh, new zealand troops who are who've been involved in the demining and the mm. recovering bodies from the demilitarized zone yeah. we have troops that come in in the maritime domain the air domain and you know on land so there's a lot going on and the demilitarized zone which of course we have responsibility for is an incredibly dangerous place there are millions of 
mines and unexploded items of ordnance that still are up there. And sadly, there are many of our fallen, Chinese fallen and mm-hmm. North Korean fallen in the demilitarized zone. So the recovery of those remains, leave no man behind, is, right. is really important to everyone who's served in, in any military around the world. Now, the Republic of Korea is not actually one of the member states of the United Nations Command, but President Yoon called on this meeting. How does the Republic of Korea, what, liaise with, work with uh, United Nations Command? I mean, closely. Uh, I was with Republic of Korea officers last night. I think, you know, I see them and work with them almost every single day. It's a very close and friendly relationship. And for me, the UNC membership is almost a moot point. They are the hosts mm. of the United Nations Command. And I think it's, it's really important that everyone knows that they have a very special relationship with the United Nations Command. And they also have representation within the command because they hold a, a general who is the senior member of the United Nations Military Armistice Commission, that organization that's exclusively set up for the responsibilities relating to the armistice. So there are already rock soldiers and service personnel within the construct of the United Nations Command. And that's really transformed over the last 70 years, right? I mean, when the, when the armistice was signed in 53, President Syngman Rhee wasn't ready to quit and, and the army was ready to, to keep going north. And so, in effect, the UNC was there holding back both sides. And that's over the years, the Republic of Korea has dropped that idea and are happy to simply stay here and discourage North Korean aggression. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty old, but 1953 was a bit before my time. But I've heard accounts of Sigmund Rhee's perspective as to, you know, the reasons why he would or wouldn't sign. But of course, in the end, the signatories of the, of the armistice were the military leaders mm. and on both sides. So for me, I, I think it remains a historical question, which sadly we'll never probably get to the very bottom of now. What was his thinking mm-hmm. behind his decision making at that time? But as the Guinness Book of Records has noted, the Armistice Agreement is long, long-standing, has been very successful. And whilst there have always been flashpoints and there is always risk and danger, it has been incredibly successful over seven decades. Mm-hmm. And again, I would never undermes- underestimate the, the tragedies that have occurred during that time. Lots of people have been killed. But we have never, thank goodness, returned to full-scale war like we saw between 1950 and 1953. I want to return to that point in a moment, but going back for a moment to the uh, Defence Minister's meeting that we had this week, do you expect that there'll be more meetings like it where multiple countries get together here in Korea to talk about things? Personally, I hope so, mm-hmm. because you know, I've spent much of my career in coalitions, in large organisations, trying to uphold peace and solutions that maintain peace. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, communication is critical to that. And so any opportunity where leaders can get together, explain their thinking, understand the rationale behind decisions that are being proposed or being taken, I think can only be a good thing. So I hope we will see more of them in the future. I remember a few years ago before you came here, when uh, Donald Trump was president of the United States, that there was some concern that America might just cut and run from the Korean Peninsula, and and, and Koreans became very worried about that. And I wonder whether this meeting this week could be an attempt to sort of future-proof the United Nations command against a re-election by Donald Trump or someone like him. 
probably outside my lane. Yeah. I mean, if I get to talk about American politics, then things have probably gone badly wrong for me. But all we can say about the future is it, events happen. I think it was Neville Chamberlain who said, events, dear boy, events. You know, that's <laughs> what will happen. Right. And the only thing that we can guarantee is that things won't be the same in the future as they mm. are today. Now, you're an officer with actual battleground experience. What was it like coming to a place where the whole point is to make sure that you don't get any battleground experience and, and that no battles kick off while you're here? Yeah, this is my third tour in my career operating under the United Nations flag. So I've worked in the demilitarized zone between Iraq and Kuwait before. Mm. I have worked desperately hard across the world trying to maintain peace in very volatile and dangerous situations. Sometimes it's gone wrong and sometimes we've succeeded. I mean, from a personal perspective, I look back at some of the campaigns I've been heavily involved with and, and lost friends in, and I see the, the peace that has come since, and specifically looking to Northern Ireland and mm. the Good Friday Agreement. You know, I lived in, in Germany as a, as a boy when the Berlin Wall still existed, and now, you know, there is a, a unified Germany. I was involved in the, with the United Nations in Sierra Leone when rebels attacked Freetown and many thousands of people were killed. Mm. And, you know, the activity of the United Nations and individual countries brought peace to that country, which still exists. So I'm, I'm optimistic. And any day that isn't war makes it more difficult to return to war. Because people get used to peace and they see the value of peace and, you know, they can focus on looking after their families and prosperity and, and you know, all of these things rather than the awful destruction that inevitably follows any sort of return to conflict. So I, like many military and service personnel around the world, if you've seen war, you never want to go back to, to that, that situation and you realise the value of peace. So... I'm passionate about this job because peace is so important and we must never lose sight of that. There can be nothing worse than returning to a conflict that kills thousands and thousands of people. I don't know who it was, the, the author, the, the original person who said the quote, if you want peace, prepare for war. I think that goes back to the ancient times. Yep. I think it's from Latin or something. Yep. Uh, is that something, something you ascri ascribe to in terms of how we, how we make sure that a peace is lasting and durable as you've got to be ready in case things go the other direction? Yeah, I, I do believe that. And I think that phrase has been talked about a lot in the last week or so. And I think that's absolutely right. If leaders who have malevolent intent see an opportunity because of a weakness of others, then history shows us that on occasion they seize that opportunity. And therefore, you know, strength, deterrence through strength, mm -hmm. I think is absolutely appropriate. And you know, General Camera always talks about the importance of readiness and what is the point in having a, a force that can defend a country if, if it's not ready? You know, you may as well not have that force. So I think you're absolutely right, yeah. Well, that neatly sets up my next question. Can you walk us through some of the differences of being on a mission of deterrence versus being on a mission of actual engagement? The focus is almost exclusively on defence. I mean, uh, and I'll come back to the reason... I don't say exclusively, but it, it is about maintaining the armistice. I, and I can't stress that enough. You know, all the United Nations Command focuses on is maintaining that armistice and how best to do that. 
And we have things like we conduct investigations to any instance or alleged instance on both sides across the demilitarized zone. We have assurance, high quality assurance delivered through the Neutral Nations Supervisory Commission, which the Swiss and the Swedes, exactly the Swiss and the Swedes, who have an independence that is bestowed upon them you know, by the commander to investigate incidents. We put reports in that explain what has happened and why it has happened. So there is a lot going on to maintain what has been agreed internationally in that armistice agreement. So it is, um, it is the maintenance of the status quo and the prevention of escalation into potential conflict that is our exclusive crisis, or no, exclusive, sorry, exclusive mandate. Mm. Yes, we will practice in our drills, you know, retaking a trench or, you know, some elements of, of that. But the big exercises we do, the Ulchi Freedom Shield and the Freedom Shield exercises at the moment, you know, we ensure they are defensive in nature. And that, uh, again, is very carefully monitored over the period of those, that training. Okay, they're talking about the uh, large-scale uh, military exercises. In an interview with Yonhap News Agency in March this year, you talked about the Freedom Shield military exercise that involved both uh, Republic of Korea and U.S. troops uh, for 11 days, and you said that it was a, a routine training to, quote, retain peace with very tight oversight. Can you help our listeners understand why such exercises are useful, important, and not a threat to North Korea? Well, it goes back to my point. If, you're, if you don't have readiness if you don't have interoperability. And remember, it isn't just the Republic of Korea and the US forces that exercise on those training events. There are other elements that can come in from the member states. It is about, you know, does the radio from the Republic of Korean platoon commander talk to the radio of the American platoon commander? And how does that interact with, you know, with a member state ship that's off the coast. And again, if readiness is as, m as important as a weapons system, you know, it's a bit like if you're not ready, mm. then you may as well not have that weapons system. So we train in order to ensure that we are ready. And you'll be familiar with the, the mantra of the Combined Forces Command, which is we fight tonight. And it's, it's exactly that. It is to demonstrate that we are ready for any eventuality at any time. And in my view, every defence force around the world should be training like that. Mm. Otherwise, it's simply a waste of money having those resources that could be spent on other things in those nations. Now, in that, in that same interview, you said... Quote, in the early stages of an exercise, we look at the challenge to the armistice that might occur, and we always try and de-escalate back to a sort of pre-crisis position. If crisis turns to conflict, we're looking at how the sending states could operate together in whatever scenario. And I'm just wondering if you could say a bit more about de-escalating to a pre-crisis situation. How, how might that be done? The problem with conflict, again, through, through you know, 37 years of experience, is that if heads get hot, if there are decisions taken that don't think through issues, and I'm not saying this has happened in any particular case, I'm just saying if that occurs, mm -hmm. then the risk of initiating activity that hasn't been thought through to the end can be really dangerous. I, I remember as a, a young company commander, my commanding officer would always say, think to the finish, think to the finish, because it's very easy 
just to step off in one direction because there's a requirement one feels there's a requirement for activity but actually you step off in the wrong direction right so we we used to call it the condor moment where you you step back have your cigar think through and then act and i think that often gives the opportunity for for de-escalation and often allows investigation into the facts Again, there's a phrase in the military that first reports of contact are always wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, in that initial battle in the information domain about what's happened, often that information is inaccurate. And if one acts on inaccurate information, there is a real risk that you make the situation worse. So I think de-escalation is always something we seek to do whilst we establish the facts as to what has actually happened. What role does the Neutral Nation Supervisory Commission play in exercises? They provide oversight for the exercise. So, so they literally will sit in, in meetings. They will interview. I've been interviewed many times by the Neutral Nation Supervisory Commission. And they will make their own independent judgment about the nature of the training and then report on that. So they're, they're embedded really mm-hmm. in almost all aspects of the training. And the commander always gives them full access to what's going on. So if they were, as North Korea alleges, aggressive, hostile towards North Korea, we would expect the NNSC to come out and say something? Absolutely. Now, how do you experience these exercises? What's your role in them? So as I described it earlier, the commander has a series of responsibilities rather than just focusing on the United Nations command elements. So I will be coalescing the information that relates to the armistice that relates to United Nations Command member states and that impacts on the capitals and nations around the world who will, of course, have a huge vested interest in what is going on here. So that coordination function on behalf of General Le Camera and the communication back to member states is something that I focus quite heavily on. Now, I recall reading in the past that uh, North Korea was invited to send observers to exercises, but they never came. Do you know if they're still invited or if they will be invited again in the future? I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest. I don't know whether, forgive me, I don't know whether that's a standing invitation or was specific for a specific event. So I apologize, Jack. No, it's okay. It was probably before you came here two years ago. Certainly during COVID, that uh, wouldn't have happened. Can you recall your first visit to the Joint Security Area and the Demilitarized Zone when you were fresh to your role as Deputy Commander of the UNC? Yeah, I think anyone who visits the Joint Security Area and the Demilitarized Zone will be left with enduring and powerful memories of that visit. And I think I regularly escort visitors into the Demilitarized Zone and the Joint Security Area. And I'm always reminded how stunning it is the first time one goes up there in terms of the impact it has on the psyche of those visitors. And I think for me, I I was very conscious of the risk. You know, you can almost palpably feel the risk that exists there. And this was during the tail end of COVID. So Mm. it it wasn't quite as as it is now. But that was the first thing that struck me. The second thing for me was... As I looked over into North Korea, I think in my mind there was, there was a sadness. You know, there is a sadness that after 70 years, mm. we are still in this position. And, you know, there are good men and women on both sides of that border. You know, there are parents and families and 
grandfathers and grandmothers who still live under, under a threat, under this tension. And again, having worked in, through my career on borders where these tensions exist, I was just sad. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to do our very best to try and reach a solution. Much of it sits outside the lane of the military, and I know our diplomats strive really hard and our politicians strive really hard to find a solution. But peace will come one mm -hmm. day. One day peace will come. And I think that the harder we can work to, to bring that peace forward as quickly as possible, the better. And I just, you know, as I depart here, I just wish my successors and I wish all those politicians and diplomats I've talked about around the world um, I wish them the very best of luck in what is an absolutely critical job for the welfare of people across the peninsula, North and South. During your time here, uh, have you had any encounters with North Korean military on the other side? I see them regularly. I mean, um, from many of the locations, the guard posts, the observation posts and the static locations on the, on the border, you can see Korean People's Army operating on the north and see civilians farming the land in the north. So thank goodness we maintain communication through the telephone line that exists. Mm. But I personally don't, I don't speak on that, on that line and I haven't had the opportunity to speak to any Koreans during my tenure. I imagine they know north who Koreans. you are. I don't know. Right, they're, they're probably looking at you through uh, binoculars <laughs> they, they, and saying... They may be, yeah. yeah. Have you been in Korea long enough working with the Americans that you now say DMZ rather than DMZ? <laughs> well, there are, there are a few lines that are important, and holding the DMZ line is important. Very good. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, years ago, more than 20 years ago, I wrote a, uh, a thesis about uh, the potential for Korean unification and looking at the unified Germany where many in the East... They talk about how there was the wall, the physical wall went away, but the wall in the in the head remained, sort of the Mauer im Kopf in German. And I speculated that there might be a DMZ in the head in the future after a unit, Korean unification, but that only works if you say DMZ. It doesn't work if you say DMZ in the head. <laughs> no rhyme there at all. Okay, so you, you were a deputy commander of the UNC at the time of the commemoration of the 70th anniversary, the longest armistice in the world, the Korean War armistice. Can you share a couple of thoughts on just the longevity about that and what makes the situation both durable and lasting on the one hand, but also potentially fragile and not to be taken for granted on the other side? Yeah, and firstly, I, I'd just like to pay tribute to the Ministry of Veterans Affairs and MPVA for their work in commemorating both the armistice and the end of war, I think it's just been amazing. And for those people who had the privilege of being down in Pusan in, in July, mm -hmm. for, you know, I've just come from Turn to Pusan, where I sat on a table and, and talked to veterans who'd been through the war, who'd seen Korea in that time, a, a desolate country that'd been mm -hmm. ravaged by war, and then come back to see the extraordinary country that is now the Republic of Korea. And just, I should just point out to our listeners that Busan is where the UN uh, cemetery is located. Yeah. That's why it's an important place to visit. Yeah, over, over 2,000 of our, our fallen lie there, ah. um, I think from 11 countries, beautifully kept and unique, I think, as a United Nations cemetery. Mm. So, you know, I can't praise enough Minister Park and the work that MPVA have done in maintaining the sacrifice of those individuals who came from 22 nations around the world and keeping their memory alive because those families paid a price that no one will ever understand if one hasn't been through the bereavement of a family member in such circumstances. So that would be the first thing I'd say, you know, mm. 
well done to, to, to the government of Korea for remembering so beautifully our fallen and all the fallen of the war. Sorry, I lost the thread there slightly. Oh, so I was hoping to get some thoughts on how it's remained durable, but at the same time, it can be fragile and we can't take it for granted. There are you know, provocations, uh, as, as many would describe them. And I think that risk always holds true. Last year, you know, 75 missile launches. This year, 29 missile launches. ICBMs being intercontinental ballistic missiles being fired. And there is always this sort of the shadow of the past that hangs over us that could lead to some resumption of hostilities. And of course, everyone will remember, almost everyone will remember the, the tragedies that were the sinking of the Chenon, the, the shelling of Waipido Island, these incidents that happen over time. And I'm very proud that even with such challenges, even with such often fatal incidents, it hasn't returned back to full-scale war. And I think much of that praise must go to my predecessors in the United Nations Command and all of the forces who've been able just to allow time to de-escalate, to consider the risk of return to full-scale violence. And so we fortunately have had no major breaches of the armistice for a while. We have had no major missile launches for a while. And long may that continue. You know, long may that continue because that does increase the volatility or demonstrate the volatility. volatility. It does increase the risk. So if something does happen, the first thing we will do is seek to understand what's happened and then uh, allow great leaders to, to make well-considered decisions. Can you say anything about sort of your own broad assessment of the current risk of renewed conflict? I mean, there is always a risk of conflict. And you know, even when a conflict has been static for a long time, I mean, one only has to imagine how the people of the Donbass felt in 2014 mm. and now with this renewed aggression by Russia in the last two years. One only has to look at how Gaza and the, and the people of southern Israel have been impacted by a, a resumption of violence mm. to realize that peace is precious and fragile. And, you know, I use a phrase to my troops that war is coming, it's just when and where, mm -hmm. because sadly, one of the truisms of life is that war will happen. But the longer we can stop it from happening, uh, and the better the decision making before a resumption of violence, the less chance it will have of being cataclysmic. And hopefully, we can avoid it totally. Looking at the ongoing conflicts in the world today that you've, you've already alluded to, can the success of the United Nations Command in holding back uh, or keeping the conflict on pause here and holding back the belligerents, could that be repeated elsewhere in the world, such as in Ukraine or in Israel? Well, I mean, I, I think I, I cite the two, two examples from my experience in the, the Northern Ireland where we were able to hold a form of peace through the Troubles until the Good Friday Agreement was signed that's led to an enduring stability and peace in, in Northern Ireland. I look to the demilitarized zone that existed between Kuwait and Iraq when there was still high tensions and the threat of Saddam Hussein, who was still in power in Iraq after the first Gulf War, prevent his return to violence into Kuwait during high tensions that people forget relating to 
you know, oil drilling, etc. So I'm confident that United Nations Command and the troops that support United Nations Command are professional, they are very well trained, and I think we will hold the line. Can you share with us some thoughts on the, uh, the comprehensive military agreement between the two Koreas? I know that was signed well before you got here, but it's been a topic of, of some debate, and now there's a suggestion that it may in part have been, what, rescinded or, or retracted? Yeah, I have. You know, this is clearly a sovereign agreement between the North and the South. Mm-hmm. And therefore, whilst it impacts on the periphery in, in terms of United Nations command troops in the demilitarized zone, the decisions that relate to it are decisions for the governments of the North and, and or the South. So that's absolutely in that lane and really sits outside my bailiwick on my responsibilities. So I'll see what, ha- we'll see what happens with interest and I'm tracking very carefully. But in, in as much as it was an attempt to what, institutionalize a de-escalation, it was looked at the time as being somewhat hopeful. For me, who continues to live here in South Korea, I see that as being a bit fraught that uh, we, we now look at the possibility of that institution being removed. Yeah, and these agreements are always put in place in the context of the time. Mm. And, you know, there were some real, really powerful attempts to, to solve problems in terms of the sunshine policy, in terms of, you know, the, the summitry that was involved, the leadership of US, North Korea and South Korea. So everything has its moment in time and whether it survives or not is really dependent on the circumstances that surround it. So we will see where it goes. I, don't, I really don't have a view mm. on this issue. Because it, presumably it doesn't affect the work of the UNC too much, right? I mean, the maintenance of the armistice continues regardless. Yeah, the, the mission will remain for the United Nations command, the maintenance of, of the armistice. And that will continue until the United Nations Security Council says it no longer wishes the command to do that task. So th- the decision mm. in, in relation to the United Nations command is vested in New York and the United Nations General Assembly and Security Council. So that both the US command element and the troops on the ground dance to the tune of New York in that respect rather than a national perspective from Seoul or, or Pyongyang. Although whether we'll ever see a day when those five permanent members agree on anything again, uh, <laughs> given the current state of things, uh, that's a, an open question. Now, during your last year here, one incident that's really come up on everyone's radar is that the Travis King unauthorized border crossing on the 18th of July, 2023. How did you find out about it? And and what can you say about it? How did it happen? How was it even possible? How does something like that happen? In the end, we do not have a trench with an electric wire down the middle of the demilitarized zone on the MDL. And therefore, despite the best efforts of, of everyone involved, there have been defections north and south and that sadly continues to occur i think we have conducted an investigation lessons have been identified and will be learned all i can say is i'm absolutely delighted that private king has been returned mm. i'm very grateful he's been returned and i think in terms of decreasing tensions i think that's a really great move and uh, and i'm very happy to all of those involved it was it was an international effort, so uh, that's good news. Can you say anything about the mechanism of how it was handled between the UNC and the, and the government of the DPRK? I mean, I don't want to go into detail because clearly these things could or would be used in the future. Mm. So therefore, I don't think there's any great advantage apart from curiosity in, mm-hmm. in going into the detail of, of how it happened. But I'll repeat, I'm just 
really, really pleased it has. And that's for, for Private King, for his family and for everyone involved. Sometimes one doesn't want to think about what alternative outcomes could have been, but that's good news. Yeah, for me, it certainly was surprising and unprecedented that he was handed back in the way that he was without there being some demands made by the DPRK side, like normally uh, that's the kind of thing that goes on. But on the one hand, that was a, a great surprise, but it did seem to take quite a bit of time there. But what was it, July? About two, two and a bit months, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. And in the grand context of things, I'm not sure that really matters all that much. You know, the point is he's back, mm. he's you know healthy and the the situation has returned to what it was and this that specific issue has been completely de-escalated and you know in, in private to all those people involved you know thank you thank you for people who made brave decisions probably and allowed that service member to go back to his family now since then commercial tours to the joint security area haven't restarted do you imagine they will and, and will they be significantly run differently so to avoid the same thing happening again as I say, an investigation has happened. Lessons have, le- lessons have definitely been learned. And I would be optimistic that tours will restart when and exactly how mm. and the mechanisms involved to reduce the chances of repetition of certain incidents, I think, will be put in place. And I hope that can occur in the near future. Was this the most unusual event to occur during your two-year stint here? I was in Japan when it happened, and I very rapidly came back to mm. the demilitarized zone. But... I suppose that it was surprising. It was very surprising. But if you consider the probably millions of visitors who've been into the demilitarized zone, then you look back on it and say, well, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised that something extraordinary happened. If you've got a repetition of something that's normal time and time and time again, then again, something's bound to change at some point. And then one has to think through all of those possibilities all the time. It's incredibly difficult on those young men and women who are up there day after day consistently doing similar things to react when something dissimilar, something abnormal happens. And, you know, those, what those troops do and what they do in terms of sacrifice and duty, I think is worth people understanding. I've, I've gone to hospital in the last two years and seen three soldiers who've been wounded badly wounded by ordnance that's in the demilitarized zone. People whose lives have been changed. These are accidents, are they? By accident or design, it really doesn't matter Mm. to that soldier. He's stepped on and a device has been initiated or whatever it may be. But some of those are life-changing injuries. For the soldiers who work with me, sailors, airmen, men and women, they spend two years in a country far from their own homes, often far from their own families, taking those risks under a United Nations flag, in the service of peace. Mm. And I think, you know, they should be continually praised for that sacrifice. I've spent a lifetime working around the world, and it's, it's a privilege to do it. But it comes at a price. You know, it comes at a price. Mm. I've spent nine years away from my family, and, you know, it's not about me, but every one of those soldiers, whatever country they're from, if they're working in the United Nations command, are paying a price for our security on the peninsula. And, you know, God bless them is all I say because they do a great job. Is that kind of injury where somebody's uh, either hurt by ordnance or, or a mine, is that an ongoing thing? Or was that unusual? That, how many did you, you, you visited? Three? Three. Is that par for the course? I mean, is that unusual for a, a two-year period? Well, I think it's, you know, we sit here in beautiful Seoul mm. and, and as the sun shines down on us, and it's very easy to imagine that this sort of peace is is all around us. But the risk there 
is very real. There are millions of pieces of ordnance mm. in the demilitarized zone that, that have not been cleared. And we have to patrol. We have to maintain observation. We have to understand what is going on in the demilitarized zone. So those young men and women have to take risk to do their job. And tragically, occasionally, that leads to injury. And all I ask is that people remember those soldiers who will be there tonight, tomorrow night, every night and every day until final peace is established. What are you uh, most proud of during your two years stint here or most satisfied with? In many ways, it echoes that last point. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of those young men and women. You know, some of them have never been outside their own country before they come here. To come to Korea is a, a privilege. It is such a beautiful country. It is absolutely unique. It is not well explored by the international community. So I'd had the privilege of coming here before, but for many people, it's the first time they come here. It's an incredible culture, but you know, I'm immensely proud of what they do. And I think they get a real sense of, there's a sense of purpose. They understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I you know, if I had one message to go back is I hope their families understand whether they're from London or Washington or Canberra. It, it doesn't matter, but they should know that these young men and women are just doing an amazing job at risk, almost always with a smile on their face and doing the very best they can. So, you know, as, as I go back to my family, I will think about those young men and women. Well, that's a great place to end our interview today. Thank you once again for coming on the show, Lieutenant General Andrew Harrison, Deputy Commander, United Nations Command. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Ever feel overwhelmed with the complexity of trying to understand what's going on with North Korea? Don't fret, NK Pro is here to help. Built on the strong reputation of NK News, NK Pro combines decades of experience with cutting-edge technology to offer the best in North Korea-related information. Here's the deal. You get daily analysis and exclusive news, along with amazing research tools that let you tap into a vast range of open-source North Korean information, such as state media search and data extraction, real-time ship and aircraft movement tracking, and A to Z directories of people, companies, and organizations inside and outside the company. Yes, you heard that right. NK Pro is perfect for those in policy, business, and research who need quality, reliable, and timely insights. It's not just about staying informed, it's about understanding the key signals that can change the course of the future. So why wait? Dive deep into the realm of North Korea with NK Pro and navigate the landscape like a pro. After all, knowledge is power. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org/professionals. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you and listen again next time. <laughs> <laughs>